and welcome back to the 21st Rewrite. It's the first episode of 2020, and this also marks the start of the second year for the podcast. So I'm very, very proud of the first year and how it went. And I would just also like to begin just by saying thank you if you are a regular listener for all the support you've given us over the past year. This week's episode was recorded in York at York St. John University. It's actually a continuation of the last episode, which was recorded with Robert Edgar, the co-author of Adaptation for Screenwriters, and we discussed No Country for Old Men. Later on, I met with Mark Herman, who is a writer and director who is also affiliated with York St. John, and he is the writer and director of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, a film that came out in 2008. So I'm really happy to be starting off the first episode of 2020 with my first interview with the writer of the feature screenplay, which we are discussing on the episode. The novel, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, was written by Irish author John Boyne and then was adapted for the screen by Mark Herman. He wrote the screenplay and then directed the film adaptation as well. If you haven't seen it, I do, of course, recommend that you you do go ahead and watch the film. However, if you just want to carry on listening, I'm sure you'll be able to pick up more or less what the, the story is about, and hopefully it will pique your interest in actually going back and seeing the film. Sometimes I do that too. I listen to a podcast and hope to learn more about something, and then once I'm actually interested in it, I then go back and, and research it and, and see the film it was based on. Now, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas has come under some scrutiny in the past because of its historical inaccuracies and I think it's very important to know up front that John Boyne specifically called this book a fable. It was meant to be an invitation into seeing the events of the Holocaust from a child's perspective. It is a work of fiction and we cover that topic in this discussion today as well. Mark said he basically wanted any kid to be able to get emotionally involved in this story because it doesn't bear scrutiny, but if a kid can get emotionally involved, then they will want to ask more questions. And when he said that, I really admired that as an ambition. I think it is a very valid point. There's always been a question about when is the appropriate time to introduce the topic of the Holocaust to young people. And I do think that having an emotional investment in the story will ultimately be a good thing in a way that is very difficult with just textbooks. And I do think that learning about history is a lifelong process. It's not something that is just easily done and that there is one thing that can be taught. We had a great discussion about the story itself, Mark's process of adapting it for the screen. There's also some information about the filming because Mark also directed it. So there is some information there. We do try and focus, as it's the 21st rewrite, on more of the story. And towards the end, I ask some more questions about his career as a screenwriter, some advice that might be useful to you as a listener. So I really hope this episode is helpful to you. And do let me know what you thought of the episode. I love to hear feedback from everyone. So without further ado, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. 
I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined this week by a very special guest. Mark Herman is a British writer and director who is currently an honorary fellow of the York St. John University. He was the writer and director of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, the film we're going to be talking about today, which was adapted from the novel by John Boyne. Mark, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Great. So um, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas is an interesting novel because it's told from the perspective of a child. And so when you went about the process of first adapting this, was that prominent in your mind about trying to convey this from the point of view of a child or with the fact that film is always told from the third person and you can see multiple perspectives were you looking to maybe stretch it out to tell the story of the entire family or or the entire holocaust where, where did you find yourself leaning well, I, to? i mean i think what really first attracted me when, when i first read the galley copy of the book my first thought was who, who needs another holocaust movie <laughs> and i think that was a most of the studio's feeling as well because normally a book like this would have been snapped up before it's published. Um, but I just thought this was different. Not It isn't just that it's from a child's eye. It's actually from the German child's eye. And that's what made me most interested in it. I thought that felt unique. But I also sort of felt that the book as written, I mean, there are so many things that work as a book that actually wouldn't work when you turn it into a screenplay. The biggest problem was that most of the, actually 80% of the book is two kids sitting in by a fence which works well in the book, but in the film, it just wouldn't bear any scrutiny. Um, is that because film depends more on dramatic tension? Yeah, um, well, it's mainly what you, what you see. You, you start mm -hmm. thinking, well, how can they meet so often? You start asking these questions. Why is the fence so far away from the camp? You know, really, because it's visual, it's open to so, so many more questions. Things you get away with in the book, actually, uh, you wouldn't get away with on screen. So... In that respect, I, I felt I had to invent a lot more to do with the family and create a lot more stuff in the house, really. John Boyne described this as a fable. And did you choose to go with that initially when you started writing the screenplay? Or did you want to bring it more into the three-dimensional reality of life? I wanted to keep the fable. Thing. I mean, we were all very keen at the studio as well. We were very keen on this remaining and being sort of promoted as a fable. Because if you say this is almost documentary, you're going to be in so much trouble. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, because, I mean, kids, you know, kids that age just didn't survive, basically. Didn't yeah. survive 10 minutes. Again, it's a film that would, you have to go into it with your heart rather than your brain. Exactly. I think just in terms of the visual motives that you chose, again, that sense of having two similar-looking characters on the opposite side of the same fence, it pretty much conveys that sense that this is not a documentary. This is meant to be an invitation to see two perspectives coexist. Yeah. But also at the same time, I, I felt we had to... It's also actually the benefit of historical hindsight in a way, because I felt a new audience needed to be reminded about what people knew at the time in Germany. And that's what I dressed into the, into the wife's character in a way, you know, that you can actually live there and not know. And that's what happened to a lot of people in Germany. They, they thought these places were work camps. And it was only later they found out they weren't. And they just needed a character to um, depict that, which I don't think happens in the book. Again, it's something that is a bit filmic. Yeah. 
Great. I'd just like to go maybe into the story a little bit more chronologically and just the introduction we get into Bruno's world. Mm. Bruno played by Asa Butterfield, who is doing very well for himself yep. nowadays yep. and uh, has turned it into a very fine actor. Um, when you were casting him, um, did he stand out above anyone else? He was one of the first people, uh, first kids we saw. I mean, we saw, because the producer of this film was David Heyman, who also did uh, Harry Potter, mm -hmm. you know, the cues for casting was were pretty long and um asa was on the first tape i saw yeah, we, we had some um casting agents who, who who deal specifically with kids up and down the country were doing chats with kids and so i would sit and watch all these things and asa was probably on the second or third tape i saw and it's just his face was just i just thought it was, i thought he looked fantastic and his eyes were fantastic and Whatever, you know, whatever work we had to do in the acting side of things was was going to be worth it. And we kept on coming back, and we kept on doing auditions and trying him with other with other kids, pairing them off to see see which chemistry worked. So it was a long process, but uh, Asa was there early on. Yeah, but we had to keep on bringing him back. I, I noticed John Boyne describes at various points in the novel the Bruno is we see his face of shock. So I. I think it's interesting that you carried that motif through of, of taking time to look at Bruno's face and, again, having striking eyes, having a striking facial features, and that's it helps to add to the impact of this child who is seeing this world revealed. There's also the innocence. I mean, he has, mm -hmm. has such an innocent face, innocent, innocent eyes. So there are scenes in the film where he's just looking, say, when he looks at the open gate. With Asa as an actor, at that age, you just say, look at the gate. You don't have to tell him to think anything. And the audience puts everything onto that face, in a way. The book itself takes a lot of time to establish Berlin, the life that Bruno is leading there, his childhood. And in the film, the time frame is compressed quite significantly. And also, some I noticed some details are cut out, and some details are more visually represented in a way that that makes them memorable so for example bruno has these three friends who he he spends all of his time with and you included scenes where they're running around together and playing and so, so that those would be memorable whereas other things that are mentioned for example adolf hitler in the book visits the family's home and that leads up to the decision to send their father to become the commander at Auschwitz. Why did you remove the motif of actually having Adolf Hitler, the character there? Well, it's one of those things with adaptation that often happens, actually. Uh, that scene when Hitler comes to dinner is um, probably my favorite scene in the book. But it just, once you have a real character, I mean, I, I, in the film, I, I tried to lose the fact well, I did lose the fact that it was Auschwitz. His name was Auschwitz in the book. I didn't want yeah. to be that any. I didn't want to have any specifics. So I didn't want to camp Commandant's name. You know, so it, so it wants to be a generic camp, basically. If you introduce a real real person such as Hitler, then you're breaking all that. You're breaking those rules. And it's another thing having Hitler in a film. Who do you cast? Mm -hmm. You know, if we're, when we're casting British. It becomes, you know, do you have Freddie Star? Or you know, it's just like it's somebody who's so obviously not Hitler because you're casting. It just makes it feel wrong. Did anything come to you in the in the sense of it seeming a little bit odd that Bruno was not aware of who the Führer was? Yeah, and I made him younger. I tried to heighten that innocence in a way. 
because I felt in the book, this isn't a criticism, but I, I did feel in the book he should know more. He, he's he's living with that family. Mm-hmm. Hitler's coming to dinner. He's old enough to know, you know, they're at war. There yeah. would have been posters of yeah. Adolf Hitler yeah. on every street yes. in Germany due to the propaganda push. And, and that yeah. felt almost comically naive to me in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, want, I wanted to drop his age. And, and it, it was another complication about having Hitler coming to dinner. So it was just the... You know, in the writing, you you have the you have the sense that Hitler will know him, and at the party they have before they leave, you know, there's that sense of the mother's uh, feeling about the Nazi party and everything. Yeah, um. sorry, I should just go on about just mentioning that Auschwitz thing. I think the reason I did all that is so that when the film did come out and you got all this scrutiny, I was able as a filmmaker to say, well, actually, well, we weren't trying to say this is Auschwitz because I knew that we'd get the criticism of that that doesn't look like Auschwitz. Yeah, you're always going to get that criticism, and I knew we were going to get that. So I just wanted to make sure that we didn't name it. And obviously, the reason why I keep going back to it is because in the book, in the book it, yes. it it so prominently is, and there's that whole confusion of him call, calling it out, out with, with yeah. all the way through, uh, which again ties into that. That one makes a bit more sense, and that his seeming. Ha- seemingly having no knowledge of who the leader of the country is and just calling him the Fury. But that was also a, a, a language problem for me. What language is he speaking to hear the word out with? Yes. That's the complication. Language is a big problem with the two kids meeting. If, if, if Schmuel is Polish and Bruno is German, they just speak English to each other. Yes. Uh, and that's a, again, that's a complication in the film. No, it's it. It is something I was thinking about with uh, when I was reading it as well, because um, I'm I'm a linguist myself, so I, I speak three languages, and I can I can see when things wouldn't have the same right. roots in yes. German as they would in English. Uh, the fury, I don't know what the German word for fury is, but I doubt it's close to Führer. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yes, you were very careful about not revealing where they were moving, but also why they were moving in the adaptation. He's swept along and he's not a willing participant. He wants to stay in Berlin and not have his life changed, not lose his friends. Then once they get there, there's there's a very iconic moment in the novel, which is discovering that the camp is actually outside his window. I think it's very interesting how you chose to portray that visually, just having this glimpse through the trees as opposed to the actual camp itself very clearly outside the windows. How did you go about writing that and thinking about how you would reveal where they actually were? Well, again, it's that thing about being in the kid's head. Because we had a lot of arguments, actually, with the studio about what you see through the window. And my feeling is always it has to look like a farm with people in pyjamas in, because we are in Bruno's head. And that's the way you go with his story and his innocence of the whole thing. If you look out the window and you see a concentration camp with Jewish prisoners... That adds complications. You've got to stay in the kid's head for us to be with him, believing that it's a farm. So that is a computer shot of, of two huts, is it, and with three or four people in pajam in what could be seen in camp as uniforms. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's very important for me that it looked like a farm. I have been to a concentration camp, which is Auschwitz, myself uh, twice, and it is noticeable how much vegetation is present around there. The fact there are birds singing in the trees. Obviously, the place now is a museum slash memorial, but it seems 
like even in the years that it was active, that that would have been the case, that around it, there was that veil of secrecy, the fact that there was almost a sense of normalcy kind of on the on the outskirts and that it was being hidden away, uh, going back to the point you mentioned of many Germans not being aware of what was actually going on there. And even you know, the uh, commandant's wives. You know, um, one of the most striking photographs I saw in the research was the garden, the sort of children's garden of the house at Auschwitz, the wall of which beyond is the camp. But it's got a slide and a little swimming, you know, little paddling pool. It's such a family little setup. It's just amazing that that's, you know, just beyond that is the, is the death camp. So yeah. that, that contrast really was present there, in, yeah. in fact, in, in history. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that's when, in a way, I wanted to paint, you know, the start of the film, I wanted to paint the commandant as a, as a, a really normal dad in a cardigan and, uh, you know, being as nice as anything to his son. I thought it was a really, really important um, thread of the story to keep his family as, a, as normal a family as possible, even though he's a killer, you know. Yeah, I, I would like to ask a little bit more about the family dynamics because I feel you did change those dynamics. In the book, Bruno is constantly referring to his sister as the hopeless case. And the main conflict within the family, because it's told primarily from his point of view, is between him and his sister. Yeah. Whereas in your adaptation, he and his sister are reasonably close and, and comfort each other many times throughout the tale. And the conflict is instead between the mother and the father? I think I wanted Bruno and his sister, I wanted that relationship. It's all to do with time, actually, screen time and, and what you do with that time. If you fill that screen time with brother and sister type, you know, sibling arguments about things that don't really matter very much, you're wasting that space. And I just felt um, it was more important to see the sister being changed by reading what she's reading through Kotler's magazines and uh, Again, in, in film terms, it's so easy because it's, it's it's hair and makeup. It's she, she suddenly gets plaits and you know, and, mm -hmm. and she dresses differently. And each time you see her, she's being uh, indoctrinated. And that, I felt that was more important to portray in those few scenes that they're together in. And in terms of the conflict between the father and the mother, is that something you drew out of the material in the book, or did you yeah, did they, you infer it there, or did you start to? see that as a more interesting conflict because of the wider themes it covered well there is another in the book there's another distraction which i think is a there's a, an affair between the mother and cotler yes yeah. heavily implied yes, yes. Yeah. uh and again i felt that was you know you could go down that route um but i just thought it was um not important enough in a way uh so I wanted, like I say earlier, I wanted, I wanted the mother to be more of a, um, a depiction of, of, of the German people and, and the knowledge of what was going on. So you chose, in a sense, to go with symbolism yeah. within those characters in terms of carrying on that idea of a fable to embody in, in the mother that the yes, German I, people. I think there's a mix. I mean, I think the fable thing is that, you know, absolutely to do with the kids, but I think, I think the home life, the, the relationship between the mum and dad is actually quite realistic, you know, that's less fabulistic. I think it's good to remind people of uh, of those sort of dramas. In terms of finding visual solutions to things that can be written about, in the book, you're able to travel into the past very easily. You're able to go into the character's memories. He talks about his, his friends and what he used to do, the things he keeps hidden in the wardrobe, and all of these things that are about his life as a lonely child and to do that visually how did you go about trying to demonstrate with your writing with with adaptation something that is essentially 
quite hard to convey as just boredom and isolation and loneliness. I mean, this is the area I can't remember what I did. I yeah. mean, there, 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 <laughs> okay. there are things that I don't, I can't remember whether they were in the book or not. But for instance, him playing drafts with himself, I think is probably something I wrote. Yes, it uh, is. To, um, you know, you need these two second shots that say all those things you're just saying. And I suppose that's part of the screenwriter's job is to, is to, to write pictures that say a lot, even though there are no words in a way. Similarly, when he goes down into the cellar and there's those dolls, you know, it's a real screenwriter's image that says a lot. Yeah, it's it's also a harrowing reminder of if you if you go to the museums at Auschwitz, you, you go through all the briefcases and all the shoes, all the coats, and then obviously all the children's toys. So there's also a, on the other side of the fence that sense of this is happening, but for a completely different reason. It's because she's become more indoctrinated. She's letting go of her childhood yeah, and getting yeah. more into the... Uh, Yes. the extremism of the, the Nazi party. But also tied up in that image is that, again, our benefit of having read about it and seen photos, because you know, that pile of bodies of dolls should really mean nothing to Bruno, but it, it means so much to us. Exactly. If I've explained that. Yeah, my next point would be on exploration. In Boyne's version, Bruno seems to be quite easily able to just wander out of the house and and discover what's around it. And that doesn't seem to work in cinema as as well either. You you want there to be some sort of threshold that he needs to cross, some sort of challenge or obstacle in his way. So having that visual image of the door that's left ajar, kind of tempting him, encouraging him to, to set out on his exploration, I think works really well as well as a, as a solution to to something that maybe wasn't really thought about in the novel. It's, it's how difficult it would be to just... They're obviously trying to keep it from him, what's really going on. Yes, now, in another advantage, you know, as a director, you have that opportunity to... I mean, that house is a, is a build. That house doesn't exist. That was something we built. So you can invent that brutalist country house, which is, you know, looks as nasty as it does. And you can design the barriers that would stop a kid getting out. And again, there's just a few lines of the mother trying to stop him going around the back. I can't you say I can't remember what happened in the book as to, as far as him breaking out or going. Yeah, he, he, he just, he just went, seems he just to be went. able to wander yeah, off. Yeah. yeah. So, I think it, it's time to start talking about some of the darker parts of it as well, which is uh, the character of Pavel. I think he's the character that draws out the most sympathy in the audience. He's the character that just kind of looking at him makes you want to tear up, makes you. It really pulls at your heartstrings just seeing someone in such a broken condition. With Pavel himself, was this historically accurate in in that sense? Would would you have them serving within a household, or is this meant to draw to light some some other themes? I believe you get the. I think they would have prisoners, as you see Pavel early on bringing vegetables into the house and the kitchen areas. I'm not sure you'd have them serving at dinner. Like like mm-hmm. happens in the film, but I don't know. I mean, research, all the research we did in the film would throw, throw up different versions. You, you know, some, some research would say that would be fine, mm-hmm. and others would say that's not what happened. So you just have to. And ultimately, you're going with the story that was in in, the, in yeah. John Boyne's version yeah. as well. That. And that dining room scene is such a crucial thing for the whole. I mean, it's the key key scene in the whole film, really. Uh, so that needed you, you needed to have Pavel in, in that dining room. So I think Pavel also serves as the first chance for Bruno to see that Jews are people, 
and that the inmates have had other lives before they ended up there. It, it, it might be the first time in his life that he meets someone who has something of a life that is beyond just the appearances he sees in the way that he can't really pin together that his father is doing all of the, the things that he's doing as a camp commander and still being his loving father at home. With Pavel, he's forced into seeing the fact that he is actually someone who used to be a doctor. Yes, but I would say, I would say that uh, Bruno only really realizes about Pavel after Pavel's gone. Mm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but I, I think, uh, you know, in that conversation when he's having his knee bandaged, Bruno doesn't understand the doctor thing. Mm. So it's only it's only a few scenes later when it's really to do with having more chats with uh, Shmuel and the teacher, the way the teacher teaches him, you know, and, and his exploration that that teaches him more. So I, I think I think he doesn't understand the Pavel situation until Pavel's actually uh, until it's too late. Anyway. Another question I had around that it's it's not chronologically there, but it's just a question I had. Why did you opt for a more British interpretation than a German interpretation? Obviously, when you're writing the screenplay, I don't think you necessarily have to write that in. You could always um, go with a different cast or a different approach, different accents, or even film it in German. But what ultimately made you decide on on having uh, a British cast talking in their, their neutral accents? There are a few reasons, really. I mean, one one is that you know that would then be out. If, if we made this film in German, I wouldn't be directing it. Somebody else I, I would probably get a German to do it, and it'd be uh, and you know, a German cast, and it'd be it'd be fine as a German film. But the studio that are financing this film wanted a English language film because they'd have trouble selling a German language film. The second uh, layer of it really is, it was the type of English we did it in, and I, and I, I did it in a sort of BBC, um, which is happened for the nineteen forties at yes, least. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I thought with that, it, it added an element. It might make an audience question whether we, as Brits, could have done the same thing. You know, just just a subliminal thing. I think hopefully going on in an audience, this feels so British and so natural. Could we, as a race, have done the same same sort of thing? Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, that w that was not lost on me because I feel that the universality of the story was was the center of this and sets it aside from other Holocaust stories that we've seen. In in, in the sense of when being asked that question that you posed at the start of why have another Holocaust movie, uh, one of those is often. Germans are treated as the other and pure evil, absolutely. And, as opposed to looking at their motivations yeah. and and where this stuff comes from. I mean, it's not it's not, it's not to do with Germans, is it? It's to do with humanity. This whole story is not to do with Germans. It's to do with humanity. <clears throat> I felt that, felt that was very important, and I think I think the payoff on that is you know having sat in audiences at the end of the film, especially in America, actually, where where an audience is so confused about who they're with. You know, when, when Bruno's disappeared and the mother and father running after them, whether the father catch, gets there in time, people people suddenly find they don't know which side they're on in a way. It's, um, that's quite rewarding to hear that confusion going on in an audience. How did you decide upon the tone 
And what were your intentions in terms of making this a film for a specific age range or historical awareness in the audience? Did you ever feel that it was necessary to make it a PG, something that parents might choose to take their children to, as opposed to something that would only be for adults because of the adult nature of the topic? See, I think the book is uh, a children's book. Do you mm -hmm. think it is? It, I, was, I, I think it's what? certainly for at least pre-teens, right. I'd say, yeah. Well, at that that age where we're also usually in school offering the, the diary of Anne Frank yeah. would be about that time we'd introduce the topic. But you have to know enough you have to know enough about the history of it to, to really understand the book in it. You know, it that to me was a slight confusion when I was reading it and thinking about turning it into a film. With the film I wanted it from the from the word go, I wanted it to be a, a family film in the truest sense of family film, where a family go to see a film and they talk about it for hopefully weeks afterwards and I think again that's what happened I think um, that can we say kids I don't know yeah pre-teen or you know young teens want, want to see this film and the parents go with them and and it just opens up discussion which might not have happened otherwise as a follow-up question to that actually that just something that I've always had at the back of my mind um, the film itself seems to have done better in Europe than in Britain and, and America. Why, why do you think Europeans maybe had a different... Uh, it's very confusing. I mean, Spain, it went through the roof in Spain. Across the border in France, it didn't even get released. You know, oh, it was, wow. it was very, okay. very odd. Germany didn't... We, we, we had a tricky time in Germany. And it did okay in America. I mean, it did... Um, it it travelled well, and it did okay in, in, in Britain as well. Um, there was the obvious problem with Germany but France I just didn't understand because I mean my films in the past have always done really well in France so that one I just didn't understand it was basically on the back of a focus group and, and they, they just didn't release it oh wow yeah. okay the the small things that can change absolutely, everything absolutely. Suppose, yeah. Yeah. maybe with Spain there's just that sense of the fact that they're still coming to terms with their own fascism that went on oh, much yeah. later that yeah. And there haven't been enough stories that have really got to grips with the implications of Francoism and yeah, yeah. and so yeah. on. And again, the the fact that it's it's such an accessible story to to an audience of a wider age range as opposed to something that's just about looking at the brutality of it or something like that. And I think in Britain, the fact that this book became part of the curriculum and I think, and the film seems to get adopted by a lot of schools in, in teaching. And that was, um, that was great. For that year, it seemed, I seem to be going around schools more than anywhere else. So as a bigger question then, uh, what were the most important themes or symbolism you wish to focus on in the adaptation overall? Well, uh, I don't know if they're important, but there's a sort of visual, visual one of, of, of stripes, and which I don't know whether people spot this kind of thing. But <laughs> you, you work quite hard as a, as a director. There's always barriers and stripes visually. To see, whether it's the staircase or the avenue of trees coming up to the house, there's always these bars. Um, so that's got a visual theme. I tried to keep going. I basically wanted, you know, I need, I wanted a kid to get, to, any kid to get emotionally involved in a story because it doesn't bear scrutiny, the story. But if a, if kids can get emotionally involved, they then want to ask more questions. And if one kid did that, then that, that was made the film worth making. I'm, I'm sure more than one did, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah, that did happen. I talked, talked to uh, 
a lovely old woman uh, who uh, used to take schools to Auschwitz, like you say, and, and she felt that the process now, taking school trips to Auschwitz, felt very much like a museum now, and that that, that emotional involvement didn't happen as much as you know, kids watching a drama can spur the interest perhaps more. Yeah, um, maybe maybe just for my generation, I've just turned 30, so perhaps with my generation there's still the sense that my grandfather was in the occupation of Germany, for example, and his, his brothers fought in Normandy, for example. So it always felt quite close, and now right. there's, there's just this awkward transition here where even in the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles now, there's, there's only a few survivors left to do the survivors stories which they do every day at the yeah. museum and things like that and and the survivors that are left were were children when they when yes. they were there but I'm, i remember I'm a, I'm a little bit older than that but i in my i remember at school learning about the whole course it was all facts and figures so there's never any sort of you know whether it was hundred thousand or 14 million it's just a big number so it was, it was never really it, it became to do with maths rather than anything else um, facts and figures, and, that, and I felt even when my my kids were being educated the same way, it still didn't seem to be an emotional attachment. It still seemed to be facts and figures. Yeah, I feel we learn as children. We're learning right and wrong every day, yeah, yeah. and and we give children that space. We we establish in the law that until you're 18, that there's a certain different responsibility in your actions, for example, yeah. and that you are given this space to learn right and wrong and Stories are one of those vehicles for learning ethics and learning morality. Yeah. And um, by following characters, you place yourself in their shoes. Yeah. And then that world opens itself up to you, as a, uh, to your imagination. I mean, that right and wrong thing is an element in the film, really, when Bruno sneaks on Shmuel, you know, mm. and dumps him in it. You know, that is a, that's a really, I think it's a crucial part of the film when he... Uh, he lets him down, and that guilt he feels, and then, and that's to do with right and wrong, and and the regret he feels, and having done it. Yeah, I'm reminded of a bit in the book where he doesn't really understand, of course, and this is a constant part of the story is that he doesn't understand what he, is going on, but that he he chooses to take some chocolate cake to Shmuel, and he finds himself eating, eating it, it on yeah, the way, yeah, yeah, because it hasn't occurred to him that. Shmuel is desperate it. and needs it, yeah. and he doesn't need it at all. Yeah. And yeah. You didn't include that particular. There's a hint of it, I think. Of it. Yeah, I think he, I think he leaves with food and arrives without any. Yeah. Okay, so it's just there to be inferred. <laughs> yes. If someone yeah. knows the story, yeah. they can find it there. I believe it's around the middle then that the mother discovers that the camp is not a work camp and that it's a death camp, and from that point on. Obviously, her relationship with her husband is going to change significantly. You went about that in a visual way as well, by having the smoke rising from the chimneys and Lieutenant Kotler comments on the smell. So this isn't something in the book. Maybe you could just share some thoughts on how, how that came about. And I suppose, again, I wanted, I wanted that major shift of the, of the wife's story. Again, this is a bit of a sort of selfish challenge as a writer. I wanted that whole thing to swing on uh, maybe an unfinished sentence, which is what happens. Kotler nearly puts his foot in it, and he doesn't even finish the sentence. It's a horrible, it's a horrible sentence he's trying to finish, but he doesn't even finish it, and 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 that is a huge dramatic shift in the whole in the mother's story and the, and the film as a whole. 
and it leads to all those you know the the, the basically the spit of the fa- of the family the father and mother also Kotler being sent off to the the front because of his mistake mm. you know it's a massive moment and that's shortly followed i think by the dining room scene which you've mentioned briefly already for me that scene shows the chain of abuse because lieutenant Kotler is is caught out when he mentions his father his father has abandoned germany was a, a professor of literature and as we know from historical fact most of the left-leaning academics in germany had to flee or stay at their peril because they were not siding with the nazi party um so Kotler's father has gone to to switzerland seeking refuge as a as a refugee and this is called out in this public very tense scene where this is being revealed to everyone and there's such a an element of shame it's almost as if he can't get over no matter how hard he he works being part of the third reich army he's never going to be able to escape this shame in in the past and he takes it out on pavel so it's the kicking down that it, i think really affects us as as an audience yeah but there's also so many you know, there's many things going on around that table which which will add to that tension for example um commandant's mother not turning up you know, that's a major thing for for the father to be upset about uh, for the commandant to be upset about of course it. yeah it's, it's so there's actually a parallel yes, yes, there yeah. and i had just seen the parallel with the fact his own father is there who who had fought in world war 1 yeah. and still believed in the rejuvenation of germany and the, the so, so his, his own mother is abandoning uh, abandoning him yeah mm-hmm. uh, and the mother um, and the commandant's wife has just obviously found out about what the camp is there's all that friction going on across that table and added so thrown into there is pavel not not being able to pour a glass of wine you know yeah. and that's uh, because he's starving yeah, and yeah 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 it's very difficult to watch that scene and yeah. uh and that's all, And at the end of it, you know, you've, got, yeah. you've got Bruno, you've got the father not stopping the kicking of Pavel. That's mm-hmm. a major, major thing for Bruno. So that the family has to witness it out yeah. in the open. Yeah. 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 And again, when... And the family yeah. is falling apart at that one moment, really. Yeah, as, yeah. as you mentioned, the, the fact that the conflict between the father and mother is, is uh, increasing at this stage as well, that's kind of an imposition of yeah. who... Who is in command here? Mm, who? Mm. What's really going to happen? And that moment, uh, you know, the David Tullius performance in that scene, I think, is fantastic. Just the fact that he sits back and doesn't do anything is uh, a real moment. Another key scene is when Schmuller's brought to the house to clean all of the glasses in preparation for for a party, I believe, or an event. Yeah. yeah. Um, He's been chosen because he's he's small. He's got little fingers that can get inside the glass and clean it. This scene reminds me of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but Percival and the Fisher King, the Holy Grail myth, where the hero is essentially meant to say the right thing at the right moment, and it will save the Fisher King. What happens is in the moment that he's meant to do this, he can't find the courage. He doesn't do it. And then he is expelled from that kingdom for for so long until he can return later, having grown up as a man, and then correct that mistake. So it is a motif that goes back in in epic literature, I suppose. But Bruno betraying Schmull because he gives him the food and then refuses to admit that 
that he was the one yeah had had chosen to give him food and that they are friends it's really tough to watch but i think it it really draws us in as as viewers into just what's at stake for everyone in particular shmuel how difficult it must be to be not only starving and having lost his family but to be betrayed by his only friend as a dramatic scene that is extremely extremely powerful yeah and I also think what goes unnoticed actually is Cotler's uh, angle in that scene because he he knows that they know each other, mm. and he when he asks Bruno is is he your friend he sort of encourages him to betray him, just a little nod. Yeah, the theatrics yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So when Bruno says I've never seen him before, uh, Cotler sort of nods. That's the right answer, you know. And Codler as a character, do you feel that he represents anything? Because there's a there's a few things that are in the book. It's more heavily not only is his affair with uh, Bruno's mother implied, but also the fact that Bruno's sister is smitten with him. It's yeah. it's, it's touching his arm, yeah, yeah, constantly yeah. trying to impress him. But yeah. she's so young that yeah, yeah. she's she's also just a, a little teenager that's kind of following around this much more mature and adult soldier. Do, do you feel that Codler has any kind of specific? representation of a part of society or is he he's well, quite always, an enigma as a character i've always regarded him as a rather a nasty piece of work but but a slightly naive one um i think that comes across i'm not sure but that's the way i've always read him in the in the film i think he's very different in the book because of that affair and uh, that gives him some gumption actually to actually have an affair with a commandant's wife is uh, quite a brave thing to do i yeah. thought risky <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> You you also changed the nature of the grandmother's death. There's conflict between the commandant and his mother, yeah. who is anti-war, anti anti-Nazi, yeah. is from the theater. Her, that's her background. Used to be a performer. I believe in the book she dies of an illness, and right. in the film she dies in a bombing. Right. I mean, there's another aspect of the book is the, is the chronology. You get you get, keep on going back to Berlin don't you? and, and seeing yes. seeing the grandparents. So it was quite difficult as a screenwriter to get to get that relationship in just in that early party scene within a, a minute to get that sort of setup of what the mother, what the grandmother is all about, because uh, you never really see her again. Yeah, it feels like you could only really include Berlin by extending it rather than having to flash back and yeah, forward yeah. and there and affect the flow of the actual mm. crux, the heart yeah. of the story. So, um, so I can I mean, see uh, why you left and, that and, out. Uh, and a lot of the Berlin thing is actually sort of under the under the opening titles. You know, the, the Bruno and his friends is all in a sort of introductory title sequence. So, but you're actually te- you're actually telling quite a bit of the story, mm-hmm. even, even though it's um, it seems insignificant at the time. So, in in the book, um, because of Bruno's ignorance. There's very little reference to visual motifs that we instantly recognize as Nazi. The uniforms, swastikas, flags, the types of cars they're driving, you, all of this visual imagery that we initial, that we always, as an audience, just say, that's a World War II film. Did you feel that that was some, perhaps a loss, a, a necessary evil, that you just kind of had to go with that, that you have to establish straight away that this is Nazi Germany? Uh, yes, and you do it in the opening. I mean, the- the opening frame is a swastika. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it had, again, because I'm saying, you know, like I say, you, you, you're trying to 
get across so much information, even in the title, you know, opening title sequence. You, know, you need to say this is wartime Germany. Yeah. Not, you don't say it's Berlin, but that opening sequence of the flag and the kids running, you, you're already, you got the wartime Germany, you got Nazism, and you got innocent, innocent kids, you know, in the opening three seconds. Yeah. We did, we did shoot quite a lot more of the, of the kids as a, as a little gang going around, sort of coming from school. And the kids, I think this is a scene in the book, is it, where they, they um, tease a, a Jew in the street? Uh, I don't remember it, but, it, but it, must be it might be in a flashback, though. Well, certainly I wrote this scene where the kids had Bruno with his friends, and his friends are being uh, anti-Jewish. Uh, it's quite a powerful scene, actually, and, and, they, and, they, and they tease an old man in the street. And the bookend of that is that actually in a scene in the shower at the end of the film, that old man is there. So he he survived. The, he's oh, wow. he's, he's okay. in the scene at the end, but nobody knows the significance of yeah, it anymore because, of, because we, yeah. we took out that scene at the front. Until the director's yeah. cut comes yeah. out, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> in terms of the ending, what were your intentions? And do you feel that they were successful? Um ultimately in the response you've seen to from audiences and from people you've spoken to since making it? Um, we had a lot of arguments about the ending uh, with the studio, or I did with the studio, about the power of the ending. And I fought hard, actually, to, to keep, keep it as it is. I mean, it's the horror. It's the, it's the Zyklon B being poured in. It's that, that's a hor horrific shot of the gas mask guy throwing it in. I wanted the film to be to have a shocking end. I wanted it to be a, a sort of a truthful end. I didn't want to duck out like mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of these kind of films do actually duck out. And having sat with audiences watching it, I'm very pleased with what it does to audiences. It, yeah. it, it confuses them. It shocks them. It's particularly shocking because it's like a Disney film. Mm -hmm. uh, they're expecting something different. Certainly in America, watching you're know, watching with an audience that that chase through the woods as the mother and father yeah they 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 think they just presume they're going to catch up with them they're going to catch up with bruno mm -hmm. um so the, there's just this moment in that chase when they're too far behind and that's really it really shocks an audience um and the final final shot of the, all those prisoners costumes i wanted that to go on even wider but we didn't have the budget to you know because i didn't want it to be just about these two kids i wanted it to be about the about the millions yeah. exactly yeah. it's kind of, kind of a reversal of the schindler's motif of uh saving yeah. one life is saving the world entire it's also yeah. these these two lives that are lost are representative of that's right everything else yep. Yep. uh that happened i do think that's a very important distinction to make because when this story has been criticized for whatever concerns people might have about historical accuracy which i still th think tie more into the question of do you see this as a fable mm. or a true story a biography which it is not claiming to be but the question of having a holocaust film with a happy ending there is a there is a recent film that fell into that trap the zookeeper's wife it's all a story about who's been saved and having this uplifting happy ending to me that is more concerning and potentially damaging than a film like this which fully embraces and acknowledges the fact that there were death camps and the vast majority of people that went into those camps died yeah 
yeah. or suffered the mm. most horrendous conditions known to humanity. Yeah. Well, that's an, an important point. I mean, even films like uh, uh, Beautiful Life, there's just a, just just an added thing at the end, which is a little tone of happiness. Just infuriated me so much mm-hmm. watching that. The arguments we had was was to, to do with the tone of the ending, but you know, I keep on saying, sitting in an audience and seeing that silence and witnessing that silence of shock at the end of that film is uh, is perhaps the most rewarding thing I've had as a writer. Is there any need to offer any positivity here, or do, do you think it is entirely bleak, or is there any spark of hope left in? I think the, the story? Ho- I th- well, I think the positivity and the hope is that the kid that kids will. S- Learn about about how wrong wrong everything was. Oh, so that you mean more in terms of the actual impact it will have on people is yes. the positivity. Yes, not within the film. The film is yeah. pretty bleak at the end. There's no there's no dodging that. And I think that's important to acknowledge the fact that once certain events are set in motion, once once a society is on a certain path, and it's not just Nazi Germany that has done this. It's it's a very prominent and well known example of this. But once this is set in motion, there's no reversing it. Right, it's, yes. it's going to be permanent, and and Germany as a as a country has had to live with this legacy for ever since. Yeah, ever since. Yeah, and bear that responsibility as yeah. a country. Yeah, just I mean the ending of the in the book it does. It, there's another chapter, isn't there, of the of what happens with the mother and father? I think, and that was quite an inter- yeah, that's an interesting thing as a writer. Do we end on that hor- horrific final scene, or do we? Have this little, yeah. What happened? What happened next? Which uh, irritated me in the book in a way. I felt the book should have ended with that punch. It didn't quite. So actually, that's a great way of tying into my next question, which would be about with adaptation. And I've just been talking to Mark about what we consider authenticity or faithfulness in in an adaptation. Uh, the degree to which you feel that as a writer, you have either perhaps an opportunity or a responsibility to include your own voice and your own opinion on the story. What have you learned through your career just in terms of including your own voice in these stories? Well, in all the adaptations I've done, I, I was um, the main rule I want to stick to is keeping close to the spirit of the book or the original material, So, such as I did a film called Little Voice, which, you know, as written, is very different to the stage play. I think this is. I think Boy Striped Pajamas. If people really analyse it, it's actually very different to the book. But but people don't realise it, and that's that's what's rewarding. That's what that's proof that it has kept close to the spirit of the book. It's it's a lot of work um, comparing these two, and uh, yeah. uh, with my podcasts, I kind of hope to take a bit of the the work out of it, so that now with an audio format, people can listen right. and, and kind of hear about differences that they weren't aware were there. Right. I remember sitting on a plane with John Boyne and him saying to me how pleased he was I, st- I stayed so close to the, to the book. I felt I'd changed it too much. And, and, yeah. So we both felt different things about, about the adaptation. Of course, I can imagine as an author, you, you're entrusting your story. Yeah. And I, I don't know how many years it took him to write this, but mm. obviously it, it was a project he, he said he'd been thinking about for almost 20 years. Yeah, yes, um, yeah. And then to... Once those rights are, yeah. there, there are rights to a, a film adaptation and it's going to be in someone's hands. When you were writing it, you didn't know him personally, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, I bought, I bought the rights myself because uh, mm-hmm. the stu- you know, studios hadn't, hadn't shown the interest. So I, I took that risk of 
buying the rights myself so I could write at least two or three drafts myself and be my own boss is, is the most it's the best part of my career so far yeah. <laughs> not having to report to anybody uh, so uh, and I met John then uh, before I did that and we chatted about it and uh, I just wanted to be I mean he, he was obviously very keen he was keen about protecting the ending uh, and uh, and so was I so it, it was quite a yeah, there was nothing written down, but there was an agreement basically that, uh, and that, and and in the end, any arguments with the studio were, were to honour that agreement with John. Really, you, you, I mean, you recognise it as his baby. I, a few years ago, I did uh, when I was adapting Little Voice, an original work of mine brushed off was being adapted by somebody else for the stage. So, oh, wow. so all these babies being handed over <laughs> to, to other people. It's quite quite tense. This podcast is primarily aimed at other screenwriters, people who might be at film school still, people who are starting out as writers, and also professional writers. One thing I think that people are very interested in knowing is about timeframes for adaptation. How this process compares, for example, how long it took to adapt the initial first draft, how, how much time did you spend with rewrites, and then how does that compare to actually filming it? It's never the same. It's never yeah. uh, just, just from I, your experience. I think I, I probably did. Uh, I probably did six drafts over six months, maybe. It's quite so, quite quick. Yeah, that's so that's phenomenally yeah. Um On Little Voice, I did probably eight, and it, and it took a lot longer. I did a film called Hope Springs, which is based on a Charles Webb novel. Then it's horses for courses. It's never the same. There are no rules. Um, when I wrote Brust Off, I wrote it in a few weeks. But it's that's not to say it's easier to do an original thing. It, it's um, I don't know. Sometimes things you write through the night and you get it done, and sometimes you don't. And have you found that adaptation allows you to work faster than writing original no, material? No, I, I also think people think adaptation is easier because you've got mm -hmm. a book to work from. But actually, in my experience, I found it harder. Well, that's good to know because, right. uh, again, if there's a misconception out there, it's good to. Well, I think it's true. I think people think I was. Yeah. I think people think, well, it's not really your screenplay because because there was a book. But in fact, there's so much work goes into a, an adaptation. Yeah. In terms of those discussions with the rewrite, at, w at what point did you start sharing it with other people and asking for their opinion and asking if they thought it worked? Well, I thought. You see, um, I thought there's only one studio who was going to make it a film, and that was Miramax. Uh, this is post Harvey Weinstein. I thought there was only one studio going to make it and mirror, it'd be a Miramax kind of film, but they'd already read the book and they'd already turned it down. So I thought, this is why, this is why I bought the rights, because I thought if you could write a screenplay, if I could write a screenplay, they could more easily see it as a film. Mm. Uh, and so that's what happened. And the only way I could write a screenplay is if I bought the rights. So that's the way that's the way that happened so i did i uh, probably did two or three drafts until i was happy then to send it to miramax and then they said yes yeah so. see that's one of those interesting things that many people might not be aware of or many writers might not be aware of is the fact that hollywood has a whole engine room yeah. of readers yeah, yeah. checking all of the latest books that are coming out especially bestsellers so the boy in the striped pajamas i think was yeah. on the, yeah, yeah. the the bestsellers list yeah. for a, for quite a while this is before it came out yeah yeah so hollywood has if they've passed on a project they've passed on it yeah but it's also great to know then that if an individual with a passion for the project like yourself comes along 
obviously you were established as a filmmaker as well, which probably helped, but the fact that you did have a passion for this project and you chose to to do the work not knowing if it would even get made, it was just something that you wanted to do and to see how it would work out. There's also the complication of those same readers, actually. If I'd sent a draft, an earlier draft, I might have got into a right mess of, you know, of rewrite hell because you start following too many notes. It was very useful to have these few months where I could write it myself and apply notes to myself for two or three drafts because notes are not always, you know, notes from studios are not always the right ones. <laughs> Especially American studios, I imagine. Another question I'd like to ask you, I feel that the writing world that I'm in, living in California, is is very different. I'm near Los Angeles. I have a writer's group, a mix of writers that are writing TV comedy, TV drama, and feature films. Whereas uh, you've been living in the north of England, where it would feel geographically at least more disconnected from that. So what structures do you have in place in terms of having people to share your work with, to get feedback from who do you trust with giving you criticism? Uh, Where where Uh, do you go with that? I go to people who are not in the film industry. I go to punters, basically, who sometimes have trouble reading a script because they they don't, you know, Mm-hmm. They understand that film language, something. but you, you do get a you get a punter's point of view, which I think is much more valuable than somebody who's been to film school. Wow! Uh, okay. Reading reading your uh, reading your scripts. But are you talking about people who live in in your community? Yeah, yeah, or? yeah. It changes. I mean, you know, and another thing is the age difference. I sometimes give it to my own. My own. I say kids; they're like in their twenties, but. I'm doing a thing at the moment. It's not a funny story, but I wanted to give that to my to somebody in their twenties to read to see if it worked. This is a nice broad one, and uh, you can feel free to to answer this in in whatever form you feel fit. But what would you say are the most important lessons you've learned over the course of your career as a screenwriter? Um to put some mistakes in the screenplay so you get notes and they, they're happy with correcting you. Um, that's a very useful tool. Um, I, swear, I, I, think that, I think the hardest thing to learn is, is spotting which notes are right and which notes are wrong. And I think that just comes through time and experience. When to stand your ground. When yeah, to... because I think early on, when you're hungry... You listen to every note and you try and correct every. You, you try and apply every note, and you get in a right old mess doing that. Mm-hmm. So, I spend a lot of time now when I get when I get notes. Uh, I spend a, a week or so thinking about them, and maybe one or two you apply. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is that uh, it's not to do with the hunger. But you know, early on, you do you you want to please everybody, and 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 uh, that can be quite dangerous. Yeah, one thing I've noticed myself is that uh, is that when you hear a valid criticism of your work and you get that feeling oh, in your stomach that yeah. it's a valid criticism, yes, that's when yeah, you should yeah. listen. Absolutely, yeah. And you know you go to these meetings that are eight people around the table and they all need to say something because that's their job. Uh, so sometimes they're scrabbling around to think of something to say. So obviously, eighty percent of them are not going to be true or you know valid. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a very important thing that you do. It pricks you when you when you when you hear the 
because it must be up there somewhere in your brain already. Yeah, you, yeah. you knew it was yeah. there yeah. At, yeah. at some level. Yes. You and knew. you hoped nobody would spot it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, some of my audience had written a couple of questions, so we already covered one of them, which was about finding your own voice. Actually, this, this question comes from someone in my writer's group, right. which is uh, Alejandra Castro in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. asks about acquiring the rights to projects. Maybe you have some ideas or things that you've learned through your career about where to go about acquiring rights. Well, it's always been through agents. I've only, I've done it twice. I've bought rights to think. Um, I did, again, it's to do with that gut feeling of, I felt when I read this book, I thought it needed to be made into a film, but I understood completely why studios were not doing that at that time. And so that gut instinct was, do I do I risk? You know, it's a bit like gambling. You know, mm -hmm. do I put a bit of money into this, uh, even though you're going to give that you, you give, you're giving those rights away after you've written a screenplay? You can you, you you're selling it on. So, but the actual process of buying those rights has always been through my agent. So I'm, so I've never got involved in the nitty gritty of that business. So it, it's more of a case of. There are people who know what to do there, yeah, and, and um, so a publisher. So a, my agent would deal with the publisher, and, and, and they, they come up with a figure. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's probably up to me at the time. Do I take it for a year or two years? Or what? Yeah. You know, so you, you can't set a time limit on it. Oh, you can set a time limit, and by the time you finish that project, either someone's going to buy the rights off you, or or you can buy another year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, that's really great information, right. I think. Clearly, she has a project in mind that right. she, she wants to buy, I <laughs> yeah, would think. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Mark, for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's, it's been really, really insightful, and I'm sure that my listeners will also be very appreciative of the time that you've given and sharing some real insight into what went on behind the scenes. Not only I, because you're a writer and a director, I'm sure you get asked a lot of questions on, on directing and on filmmaking yeah. a lot of the yeah. time as well. So it's great to be able to pick your brains about the actual process of writing and story. And um, Well, it's amazing how much you forget yeah. <laughs> what you've done. Yeah. But I think that, that I mean, being a, being a director as well, is, it, it, it makes the writing, I do a lot of my directing in the writing, if that makes any sense. So certainly for actors seem to, I think the way I write, actors seem to read that and it's almost like it's a direction in a way because when they turn up on sets they seem to have got it that sounds terribly arrogant to me saying that but it does seem to be that way and if i was if i was just a writer i think i'd be writing in a different way so i'm i'm writing to help myself as a director later on have you ever written anything that someone else took on to direct or did you always i wrote uh, i wrote something i, w I was going to direct but then then i decided not to so i did another draft and 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 put in lots of difficult scenes to shoot. Okay, all, so you have all, you have seen the implications yeah, of that. Yeah. Yeah. You've it, seen it, the it results. Didn't, it didn't get made, but um, yeah. Okay, that, that's the only time I've written for somebody else. Okay, well, yep. yeah. Thank you so much for it joining. It was a pleasure. Um, all the best, and thank you. Cheers. Thank you again for listening and continuing to support the Twenty First Rewrite. Please make sure you are subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram for the latest news and updates. There's a bunch of new episodes coming up, including very special guests from various locations. 
There's an episode recorded in London, an episode recorded in Belfast, and an episode recorded in Los Angeles coming up. And the guests are going to be fantastic for all of those. So until next time, and I hope you have a great 2020 ahead. <laughs>